Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg. I am the host of Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're going to take a deep dive into everything you need to know about being induced. To have this conversation, I have Trish Weir. Trish has developed a reputation for helping laboring people feel empowered and confident. She's the mother of seven and a labor and delivery nurse and a childbirth educator. We go and take a deep dive. We talk about your cervix. Is it favorable? What's a bishop's score? What does it even mean to have a a favorable cervix? And then we talk about the whole path of induction, checking your cervix, knowing if it's, if you need Cervidil or Cytotec or Foley bulb, talking about Pitocin, how to have a conversation with your care provider. If you want a little bit more time and negotiate, we talk about the whole shebang. So I think you're very much going to enjoy this conversation. Now I'm all about being open and transparent. So I will say there might be one or two choppy moments because while having this conversation, there was a massive thunder and lightning storm right outside my window. I'm quite confident you're going to hear a few bangs of thunder while I have an amazing sound editor. There's only so much you can do. I will say at one point I looked out my window and I think one of my neighbor's packages that might've been on their steps was floating down the street. Yes. It was like typhoon weather going on here. All right. But before we get to that fun conversation, just a reminder, as we're starting to move our classes back into our studio on the Upper West Side in New York City, we've had this amazing expansion online. And we're not going to close those doors. We're not going to forget about the connection and roots that we have started to grow. And so we're starting to look at having some of our classes hybrid. So while the teacher, likely myself, teaching in the studio in New York, we're also going to live stream so that you can watch it anywhere. And we're going to keep a few of our classes just online. We've created this wonderful intimate relationship where you can check in with each other. You can really understand what's going on with you and support you through that. So we're we're just finding a new paradigm in how to create prenatal yoga center. So thank you for helping us get there. And thank you for your support as we move through that. I've also heard from some students that they want to get to class every day, but life's in the way because life happens. And so I created what I'm calling my cheat sheet for when you have some aches and pains, but you can't make it to class. So if you go to our website, you can download the five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. That way, if you're having some neck pain, you have some back pain, you have some hip pain, I've got you covered that you can do a few poses on your own to make yourself feel better. I also want to thank everyone that has left a rating and review. It's helped people find us. So if you haven't, I would ask if you have a moment, please go to wherever you listen to this from and leave a rating review. It just helps grow our community and our audience. And then the last thing that I'm going to share for the rest of 2021, we're going to have our teacher training, including our postnatal and our two prenatal teacher trainings online. After that, I'm excited to get back in person and I'm hoping 
hoping, my big plan is that once a year we can still gather online. We've had people sign up for our fall trainings from all over the world. We have someone from Spain, we have someone from Brussels, we have someone from Vancouver. It is amazing that we can still come together and grow and learn. So if you're interested in our 85-hour teacher training or our weekend intensive postnatal training, go to prenatalyogacenter.com and check that out. Okay, we're going to take a super quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Trish. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hi, Trish. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I love that we did that. What was it exactly? It was like a little online birth (laughs) chat. Yeah, (laughs) I forget what it was officially called. I'm so terrible. (laughs) But it was fun. I got to know you. I got to learn some uh, some stuff about you. I loved hearing what you had to say. And we had some awesome, um, some other wonderful speakers. So I'm glad I had a chance to get to know you. And I'm excited to have you come on and talk a lot about in. Induction. Oh, this is a topic that comes up in class a lot. So I guess let's dive in with a little bit about you. I'd love to learn a little bit about you and what led you to becoming an L&D nurse. So that goes way back. I had my first child um, when I was a child. I was 17 when I got pregnant with my son. Um, I was, you know, not... Uh, a typical girl to get pregnant. I had been, um, very, um, on my career path and I was going to be an artist and I had all these, you know, all (laughs) these things and I get pregnant and I was super scared and I was very, um, uneducated with pregnancy. But the thing that I had was a group of women. My family's very, um, you know, supportive of birth and breastfeeding and all these things that I now realize was so lucky. I was so lucky. And I also um, ended up with a nurse who was incredible. She advocated for me in a way that in the future would change, you know, would lay a foundation for me as a labor and delivery nurse. She made such a difference in my life that I was like, wow, I really want to do that job. Mm-hmm. Well, I went on to, um, I had more children. I have seven children now. Um, I became a nurse later in life. I, um, was a stay at home mom, did homeschooling. And I always tell people that I lucked up because not only did I have a good female support group when I was pregnant, but I somehow, as this young mom, got into um, the best group of moms that were already doing delayed cord clamping and all of this stuff, you know, that was so conducive to birth. And uh, they taught me that birth was not a medical process. And so I just knew I wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. And I pursued that. I, I crossed the stage pregnant with my daughter, my number five. And I um, had her, I sat for boards on Friday, had her on Monday, and I started my job and I was so excited. And then I was quickly saddened. 
I was floored by what I saw. I realized that I had been extremely fortunate because I was educated and I was also supported. And um, I just really lucked up because the women that came alongside me while I was pregnant also educated me. Mm. And so as I'm on the floor and I'm seeing all these things done to women, I just uh, got more and more upset about what I was seeing. And I was starting to kind of question my dream of being a labor nurse. And, um, and then, you know, that was my story of becoming a labor nurse. The, how I became an educator is because of my story of becoming a labor nurse. I um, got very disappointed, but then I decided I've got to do something because as a homeschooling mom, I would educate my patients when they would, you know, end up in my room. But during labor, you know, is not the best time to, to learn a lot. You're yeah, we don't want to be in that part of our brain at that time. <laughs> no, no, you need to pull on that foundation and have mm-hmm. some things to pull from. And so, um, I just really started like trying to figure out how can I reach these women before they get to the labor and delivery room and, and, and just kind of modeling what I had experienced, uh, in my own life. And so in, uh, you know, 2017, I started my shop and then in 2018, we started the blog and it really took off because as hungry as I was to empower and educate, they were to learn, but I wasn't having a connection. And so in 2019, I started doing the bulk of my education on Instagram and it just took off. And what I found was these women were just as hungry for the education. They, they wanted to be educated. They wanted to be empowered. They wanted someone to come alongside them and say, no, this isn't okay. And yes, you can do this. And birth is natural. It's a natural process. It's not a medical, you know, procedure. It's birth. And so, you know, my, the two worlds kind of collided. And so I was able to do what I love, but at the same time, empower women. Are you still actively a labor and delivery nurse? Not at this point. So I do travel assignments. I've done the, the bulk of my, um, my career has been travel assignments. And uh, in 2020, right around the time COVID vamped up, I was getting ready to take an assignment, but I met the love of my life and we got married in a whirlwind. So I kind of changed my focus. And at the same time, my business just exploded. Right now, I just don't even have time. I, I, I've i got some more assistance. So I'm thinking about taking a PRN job because I really miss bedside nursing. Yeah. But I feel like what I'm doing is a little more important at this time. Yeah, there is something really special about being in the room when someone's laboring and birthing. But I hear you. I stepped back from the doula world um, because family obligations was just too much. But I do hunger for that sometime, and I can hear that same hunger for you. I think once we get bit by that birth bug. We're like, oh, keep, yeah. keep educating, keep feeding, keep learning. So yeah. I'm excited to jump into, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. I did not know it. All right. So <laughs> also just want to let people know there's a thunderstorm. I don't know. Can you hear it? Did you hear that mm-hmm. big boom? <laughs> right. I heard the one. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's what, you know, that's the fun thing about doing these things. Um, so friends listening, you might hear that thunder. All right. So let's jump into talking about induction. Wow. Does this come up a lot in class? People want to know they're really, as you said, hungry for this information. And sometimes, mm-hmm. depending on where they're getting information and 
kind of maybe a schedule that is laid out, they may not have all the pieces about induction, what that even means, what it looks like, what's involved. So I'm really excited to dive in. And I guess one of the first things is I had a student ask me this morning when I told her we were doing this, she said, what's the difference between induction and augmentation of labor? So I guess we can start with that. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a great question because not a lot of people even think to ask that question. So an induction of labor is where we do something, whether it's medically or mechanically, to get your labor started. So your labor is not happening. And so we get it started. A augmentation would be your labor is already started and then we intervene to get it going maybe faster or more efficiently. So we augment your labor in that case. Mm. All right. So thank you for answering that. And I'm sure the student will be happy about that. All right. So let's keep moving on. If we're talking induction, I guess the first thing we should also think about is how we even start it. And, and if it might be, I'm going to put in quotes, successful. Like, So let's talk about a favorable cervix. I always think that's important because otherwise, if we're starting things and that cervix isn't favorable, it's like bashing against a closed door. So let's talk yeah. about what is a, a favorable cervix and then what is the Bishop score and what does it mean? So that's a great question because I think a lot of moms do not understand that they need to know if their cervix is favorable. And the reason you need to know if your cervix is favorable, basically what it's saying is, is my, are my chances of a vaginal delivery, uh, favorable? Like, is my cervix favorable for a vaginal delivery? So it's very important that we um, we know that. And usually the provider will kind of do one unknowingly to you, a Bishop score. What a Bishop score is, is a, um, a, a scoring system for whether or not you're favorable for labor. And uh, and whether or not we're going to start you with different medications, which I know we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things that go into the Bishop score. The first one would be the position of your cervix. And I, I love to show my students uh, by using a pelvis because your, your cervix is almost like a satellite per se. So it's pointed back and that would be a posterior cervix. That's how your cervix is throughout your your pregnancy. And that's just another added layer of protection, just like your amniotic sac, just like a closed cervix, um, so that it's pointed backwards instead of pointing forward, you know, for, I always say, for the way out. <laughs> um, and then you have, it, it goes either mid position or anterior. So that's the first score that you're going to get. If your cervix is posterior, you're not going to get any point. So we base this on a point system, right? And uh, eight or more points tells us that your labor will either start spontaneously soon and or that your labor will um, induce labor will end, you know, in a vaginal delivery, which is what we hope for. Six to seven is kind of a unclear spot, like may or may not. And then five or less is pretty unlikely that you're going to have a favorable induction or that you're going to go in labor soon. Um, so cervical position is the first cervical consistency. So I always tell my girls to kind of touch the end of their nose. That's what your cervix kind of feels like mm-hmm. um, when it's normal, like a firm cervix is going to feel like your nose. Uh, and so we score that on firm, medium or soft when it's nice and soft and mushy, then it's very, you know, that's a good thing. So that would get you a two points. Uh, effacement is another part. And the, the thing about everything I'm talking right now about, 
about. I always tell my students, this is everything that goes into a cervical exam. Everybody thinks dilation and effacement, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, there's more, there's more to whether or not things are happening. So I like when my patients are discouraged and I'm checking them and they're still two centimeters, but they are now, you know, anterior cervix and it's soft. That means they've made change and that's progress. So I always want people to know that these are all, you know, important factors. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about cervical consistency and position. The next one would be effacement and everybody, you know, pretty much knows that no one ever knows their score. When I ask my students, I'm like, well, how, how effaced were you? They never know, but you go from zero, which is like very thick cervix, um, all the way to, um, a hundred percent, which is a very thin paper, thin cervix. I have a great, uh, reel on Instagram that shows this. If anybody wants to see, you know, a visual, I'm very visually oriented. So, um, so you would get all the way up to three points for cervical effacement. And then of course I, I hear the thunder. I hope it's not too distracting. My husband just texted. He's like, I think there's a tornado outside. I'm like, we're going to just keep going. We don't have a tornado. We're in New New Jersey. When is there tornadoes? All right. So I'm still, if it ends up being where we need to record, it's fine. I'm good. I can go with it. All right. Okay. So then the next thing would obviously be cervical dilation, which everyone knows goes from zero to 10. So if you're zero centimeters, you're going to get a zero. And then all the way up to greater than five, you would get the most points available. And then fetal station is another one. And this is uh, where the baby is in line to your, you know, your ischial spines in your body or in your pelvis and uh, anything uh zero or less, you're going to get less points, you know, two to zero points. And then the most points you're going to get is if you're plus one or plus two, which that's really good if you're that. So you always want to take that into account when you're considering induction, especially if you're considering elective induction. So if you're wanting to be induced and you've got a less than five Bishop score, I would say, let's wait, you know, don't do this. So let's also talk about what happens with, and I hate the word, so I'm going to try to find a different word. I was going to say failed induction. Let's say, let's find another word because failed sounds kind of mean. Let's say, um, mm-hmm. unsuccessful. <laughs> unsuccessful. Well, that's, the as, that's the same as failed. Yeah. Um, uh, uh-huh. so, uh, so let's try to think what would be a better word. Woo. Wow. I think you've got a worse storm than I do. This is going to be for a fun. People are going to be listening and be like, what's going on there? Um, okay. Instead of failed, let's use an eventful. No, I don't know. Um, one that did not, re- one that did not end with results in a vaginal delivery. Yeah. There we go. So yeah. when it doesn't, when that cervix is long and hard and posterior and baby is high up and yet, there is an induction that's getting started or keeps trying. What is likely to happen? Well, there's a couple things that I would say, and this would be, there's different scenarios here. If you're having an elective induction and that's happening, this is why I highly recommend to my girls, my students, and both of my birth courses to not let them break your water until you're in active labor, at least, if not at all. I really recommend they don't let it break on its own. Um, but if they are in what we call it is a serial induction, <laughs> you know, is that um, 
if your water's not broken, then we can stop it and you can go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we can give you a, what we call a Pitocin break. There's a lot of new studies and new things that they're doing in labor and delivery now with Pitocin breaks where they're, they're stopping, they're giving moms Tums, they're giving moms Benadryl. I, you know, I don't know exactly the science behind it. I know there's been a lot of studies to try to get things going, but basically with Pitocin, our body only has so many oxytocin receptors. Mm -hmm. So when they're saturated, they're saturated. So if nothing's happening and your oxytocin receptors are saturated, then nothing's going to happen. You know, so the best thing in that case, if your water's not broken and, you know, you don't have a medical reason, then I say, you know, let's say, wait a couple of days, come back to the hospital. It's not going to do you any good to sit in the hospital, not in labor, you know? Yeah. Cause then if they might not, say you've been, we've been doing this for a while. Right. Let's, yeah, let's look at something negativity. else. Yeah. 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 So with a mama whose water is broken, then I really suggest like a Pitocin uh, break, doing all the things, trying different things, letting a lot of times we'll stop it, let her eat, let her take a shower, let her feel like a person again, you know, because if she's being induced, she can't eat, she can't do much. Um, so let her rest and just start again. So sometimes we'll do that for six hours. Sometimes we'll do it for 12 hours. It just depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. If, if it's a medical induction and you're being induced because, you know, baby's going to be better off on the outside of you, then it's a little, you know, different. So it really depends. How is baby doing? How is mom? If she's preeclamptic, what are her symptoms? If she's gestational diabetes, what's going on? You know, so, it really just depends on the different reasons for being induction for an induction. But I, I tell my students all the time because I think moms are really tempted, especially nowadays. We're a very much like, I want to do everything on my time, immediate gratification. Like I'm not used to waiting. And so a lot of moms get really, you know, in the beginning of pregnancy, they're like, hell no, I'm not going to be induced. But at the end when they can't breathe and they, they, they're can't sleep. They, they get very tempted. So I always tell my moms really think about it. Like, do you really need to be induced because self-induction methods and hospital methods have, they're very hard to get started if your body is not ready. Like, I mean, if it's not ready, it's It's not ready for a reason, you know, so. So I'm torn. I have two, I'm going to ask both questions. I guess I'm going to go first with, cause you talked about like self-induction. So I definitely want to hit that, but I think, I think the best question I do want to lead with is we're talking about medical induction. We're talking about, um, elective. So what would you say if you could list some medically indicated reasons for an induction, what would those be? Well, the first one that comes to mind is maybe IGUR, and that's when intergrowth or interuterine growth uh, restriction, maybe the baby. Now, that's a lot different than small babies, so I really hesitate to even say it because um, a lot of moms are told their baby's either too big or too small. And um, with a growth restriction, they are falling off the curve. So maybe they've been growing a certain pattern and they drop down the growth curve mm-hmm. and, or maybe the baby, the body's not growing proportionately. In that case, the, something is inhibiting the baby from getting nutrients. So it's safer for baby to be outside because those, those nutrients are super important for mm-hmm. all aspects of that baby's functioning. Another one would be say mom has a chronic condition. 
a medical condition that is, you know, difficult for her. So, um, or a chronic hypertension, or we talked about preeclampsia, mm-hmm. um, pregnancy induced hypertension. Uh, maybe mom has uncontrolled diabetes and she's on medications. I, I hesitate to say anything. If she's gestational diabetic and she's diet controlled, I think she really needs to sit down and have a clarifying talk with her provider. If everybody's doing okay, she may not need to be induced, mm-hmm. although they will try to push induction. Um, if you go after 42 weeks of, of pregnancy, the placenta, you know, begins to break down after 42 weeks of pregnancy. So that might be a time to consider, um, you know, if you and baby are not doing great. Um, sometimes there's infections or reasons if your water breaks early, you know, and, uh, and just nothing's happening. (laughs) Yeah. And nothing's happening. They may need to, you know, get your labor started. I always tell moms like water breaking isn't necessary labor. I hesitate to say gestational diabetes because if it's diet controlled and mom's doing good and baby's doing good, then I really um, recommend to my readers and my students that they sit down and have uh, a conversation with a provider if they're not wanting to be do- induced because most providers will push it even if everybody's doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason that uh, people are induced a lot of times is for a big baby. Yes, I was but, hoping you would talk about that. Yes, this is one of my soapboxes that I get on all the time. Part of that is, you know, I have a course that's specifically for VBAC mamas. And I started that course because of how many women were reaching out to me that were traumatized for their birth. And a lot of them were moms who had cesareans. And so in my research of, uh, you know, obviously in my practice, I saw moms all the time, tiny moms having big babies. And um, as I was researching for the VBAC lab, wow, you've got quite the storm going on. <laughs> All right. As I was researching uh, the VBAC lab, I was doing a lot of research on big babies because a lot of my moms were taken back to the OR. A lot of my moms weren't even given a chance to deliver their baby because it was too big or their pelvis was too small. So I get really fired up on this one because ACOG um, recommends or, or states that a uh, suspected big baby alone is not an indication for induction or, or um, cesarean. So mm-hmm. I always tell my readers that if they're saying you need to be induced or you need to have a cesarean because of a big baby, then I would fight that one. They're almost always off, almost always. And I would at least ask for a trial of labor Um, The interesting thing about big babies is when I was studying this, I saw a bunch of studies and one of them stated that women who, let me see if I can say this understandable. So women who are not told that they have a big baby, that they've never been told, no one's ever said your baby's big or people didn't know their baby was big, but legitimately had a big baby, had no problem birthing those babies. But the women who are told or started hearing negative comments about big babies are the ones who typically have a hard time. So it really just falls back into mental mindset, which is both of my courses are very heavy on mental mindset. Because when you start 
when you start hearing negativity or doubt of your ability to birth your baby, you start doubting, doubting that you can birth your baby. And that's when a lot of trouble starts happening. Yeah. The confidence. Yeah. I think I actually read that same, that same, it's either article or study. I remember reading that. And I also know Rebecca Decker from um, evidence, evidence-based birth has a lot of information on this. And I interviewed her about big babies and she was saying that the ultrasounds can be off up to 15%. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lot. A lot. And it can, and and it's all, and that's, that's a very accurate statement. I can't even tell you how many times these moms come in to be induced. And I'm like, I always ask them like, so, you know, cause a lot of times the doctor will fudge what their order is of why they're being induced. They'll come up with something and I'll ask the moms and they'll say, Oh, you know, my baby's going to be big. And I look at her and I'm thinking, really? Like, cause yes, I always don't really palpate know. them. We don't know until no, that baby's out. Yeah. But I can usually palpate and like, get kind of a guesstimation of what they're going to be. And I'm always just floored because I can't even tell you how many mamas that we've done inductions and C-sections thinking they're going to be over nine pounds. And these babies come out seven, seven and a half. Mm. Yeah. And it's like, it's it's so frustrating. And when they're take, when they have a C-section because of this and their baby's seven pounds, that's just not right. Yeah, you know? and then they may have a hard time finding someone that can do a V-back. So I wanted right. to, we're going to take a super quick break, but when we come back, I would love for you to lay out the steps of someone may then need a medical induction. We talked about some medically indicated reasons. So someone may need a medical induction. Let's talk about the steps that they may expect. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Okay, so they, they're getting induced. What can they expect? We talked about they're checking the cervix. Hopefully it's favorable. Hopefully the numbers are saying, all right, we think, you know, we need this. Cervix is looking happy. Let's go. What might they expect? What would the steps be? Okay, so that it really depends on uh, what's going on with your cervix. So, if the cervix is nice and soft and thin, you know, and maybe a little dilated, we might skip the cervical softening part. But nine times out of 10, most moms who are induced come in for cervical softening. We'll start with a prostaglandin. So we usually have them come in the night before, around midnight, 
and we do one of two prostaglandins. One is Cytotec and one is Cervidil. Cytotec is most often used because it's cheaper for the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Cervidil is a little more experience, or expensive. I personally like Cervidil because it is, I always say it looks like a little flat tampon that has a tail, a string. And we are a little more in control of that one. So say mom starts really contracting, like hyperstimulated or something, we can pull the cervidal out. Whereas Cytotec is a pill and they can do it either by mouth or they can put it into the vagina right next to the cervix. Mm -hmm. So either way though, it's absorbed. So once it's done, it's done, you know, so we really can't control that one, but that one is the one that's used the most. So typically most labor inductions start with a um, prostaglandin or a cervical softening. And uh, we do that over a period of time, try to get the, you know, the cervix softer before we would start, you know, what I refer to as the big gun, which is Pitocin. That's the most used medication in labor and delivery. Um, Did you ever see Foley bulbs being used? We do. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, So that's another, there's also mechanical. So that's a medical um, cervical softening. Mm-hmm. We also have a couple medical or mechanical ones, one of which is a Foley bulb. And yeah, I love the Foley bulb. That's the way I always recommend my VBAC moms start. Um, it's a, it's a less, I hate to say less invasive because it's obviously invasive, but it's just a more natural way to get your cervix. So what we do is we inflate the bulb inside the cervix. And so it mechanically pushes open the cervix and then it falls out when mom's about four centimeters. And a lot of providers will do that in the office and send mom home, mm-hmm. let her go home. She can go about her business and, you know, then come in the next day. Some some of them are doing the medications as well and sending them home and, and bringing them back. But typically you're going to have it done in the hospital. Another one is there's some different metal rods. I don't know if you know about these. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, one is called Dilopan S and they're basically the, they're not metal. I'm trying to think of, they're, they're like, uh, rods that they put into the cervix and they absorb fluid from the surrounding tissue and it, and it expand. And so they can dilate you up to four or five centimeters, I think. And this is another one that's, uh, it's a little less stress on baby and mom and mom can go home and go about her business and have these in there. So those are, they're not used in a lot of facilities. It's a little, it's not new, but it definitely hasn't made its rounds. But say it again, um, I'm going to look it, it up. Something. I honestly haven't heard of that. Say it again. What is it called? Dilapan S is one of them. Dilapan S. I'm, oh, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm going to look that up. Yeah. (laughs) I actually, they, they actually reached out to me to see if I would be interested. I'm like, well, what am I going to do with it at home? But, you know, um, yeah, so that's another one. And I actually just had one. I, I heard about it about a year, year and a half ago, and I haven't really heard talk in the labor uh, community, but I did have one of my VBAC moms reach out to me recently and ask me what I thought about it because her doctor offered that. And I was like, yeah, I think it's awesome. I mean, it's basically the same as the Foley bulb. It's funny when we started using Foley bulbs, we actually used Foley's, which are, you know, urine catheters, but there is another one called a, and I'm just blinked on it. It is called, oh my goodness. <sighs> What is it? I can't think of what it's called. I just had a mom moment. <laughs> okay, so forget that. Oh my gosh. 
What is it called? I literally. All I know is Foley bulb. I don't. No, it, there's a actual a Cook's catheter. That's what it's called. Okay. Yeah. So someone went ahead and made one specifically for this. It is a little easier for us as nurses because everything's in one little pack. Mm-hmm. Um, but Foley bulbs work just fine. It's nice um, to know another, that there are other options besides just the pharmaceutical, like mm-hmm. the you know the the pill, either the Cytotec or the yeah. Cervidil. Yeah. And that's what I, I recommend to my VBAC moms because, you know, we want the less stress on the uterus as possible. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of controversy about Cytotec because it's not really approved for the use that we use it. Mm-hmm. Cervidil is. Um, but like I said, not a lot of hospitals use it. A lot of hospitals use Cytotec. Another thing that they can, they will say that they do is break water to get your, um, labor started. Now there is, you know, some reasoning in that as far as it can stimulate the labor hormones, but most of the time they say it to kind of get it going faster, but the science has proven that it really doesn't shorten your labor, but by 30 minutes. So I personally recommend to my students and my readers that they do not allow their provider to break their water until they're in active labor. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, the, the bag of water is there for a reason. It's there to protect the baby from the contract, you know, the force of the contractions. If they have any cord issues, it, it cushions the cord and it also protects them from infection. Mm-hmm. So it really, it's really kind of crazy to me that they break it so soon, you know, and, and also adds buoyancy. So if baby's coming in at all malpositioned and you have that baby in that little balloon of water, they're more mm-hmm. through movement through and maybe the forward leaning version or some sort of hip jiggle, they're more likely going to be able to coax their way into a more favorable position. And if right, the, yeah. you don't have that bag of water, it's harder to reposition a baby. Yeah, no. And and again, it starts a time clock. And let's say we our induction is not going the way we want it to. If your water's not broken and you don't have a, a high risk reason for being induced, then you could go home and come back and start again if you need to or wait on your body. So, you know, once the water's broken, there's a time clock and they're not going to let you go home. So now we've uh, got the cervix somewhat either softened or even dilated. And sometimes uh-huh. that's enough just to kick the pregnant person into contractions. But then how do people typically start? Can you talk about the increments of Pitocin and how that's introduced? Yeah. So typically what will happen is in the morning after, you know, you come in in the evening, in the morning, we will usually um, start them on Pitocin. It's a um, IV medication that we titrate. And what I mean by that is we start at a usually one to two milliunits, and then we go up by one to two milliunits every 30 minutes. I've done a lot of research and um, the science proves that going low and slow, this is what I teach my students, is actually much better than them pushing it really hard and fast. So I typically, even with my own patients, I start out by one and I'll go up by one. I never go up by every 30 minutes, just depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, our body, when our body starts producing oxytocin, which is the, you know, natural form of pitocin, then it doesn't just go, you know, one milliunit every 30 minutes. It does it, uh, you know, how our body needs it. And it gradually, people ask me all the time um, on Labor Nurse Mama and on uh, in my courses, 
is it true that a like an induced labor is worse? And I always tell them, because I've had six babies unmedicated, three induced and three weren't. And it's not that it's worse. It's just that it gets you to the more intense stages a lot quicker. So you don't have time for your body to acclimate. And you're having to switch tools really quick because I always tell everyone needs like a labor tool bag filled up with tools, you know. And you know as well as I know the tool you use in early labor doesn't work in active labor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times I think it's a mental thing as well because it's like my – my midwife said to me once, it's, it's like you're standing on the edge of the cliff and we push you off, you know, like instead of you getting to grab your, I'm not any, I don't ever do any kind of repelling or anything, but you grab your equipment and start going down slow, you know? So I think that's why it seems so much worse is because you don't really, you know, like early labor, it could be happening for a day or two and you're building up that, at, you know, your pain tolerance and your threshold is changing gradually. Does it also have to do, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I thought it's because Pitocin doesn't cross the brain barrier the same way oxytocin does. So the brain doesn't recognize it the same way to release the endorphins. So that feedback loop is disturbed. So we're not getting that natural morphine being released. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all of it because our body is having to catch up with what's happening. It's not doing it itself, which if our bodies are left to spontaneous labor, it does it so beautifully. Like I tell my students all the time, like, believe it or not, like you can actually love your labor. And what's sweet about oxytocin is it is our love hormone, which I think is so crazy that we release the same hormone during labor that we release that an makes orgasm. us love our babies. Yeah, or an orgasm, right? And so you can love your labor. But yeah, I think all of that plays in that our body is not doing it. Yeah. It's not our body. And I always, I always can tell when my mama's body takes over because it's just so much more effective. Yeah, and there's just different kind of movements that start to happen as well. So I realized I didn't, so that was wonderful talking about the more medical side of we got the, the cervidil, the cytotech, then we have the mechanical, and then we've got the pit. What if someone is hoping to avoid, they don't need an immediate induction, it's not like preeclampsia, like we got to get this baby out, but they know there's a certain time that their care provider is setting for them, and they want to do some some (laughs) do-it-yourself cervical softening. What could they do just to try to coax their body into, I'm going to put in quote, natural induction, because anything that we're interfering with is slightly... Not natural, yeah. but they want to just give their body a little boost. What would that be? Yeah, I call it a DIY induction. Um, yeah, so I tell my students that they should be preparing their body for labor from the beginning. So taking care of their physical side. I mean, when your body is in a, a good physical state, it's going to perform its best. It's going to do what it's supposed to do properly and, you know, at its best. So I'd say that starts with a good nutritional status from the beginning and also, um, you know, doing things like you do with your yoga and like just working with your body, getting it ready. Another thing that I recommend, and these are not labor induction things, but there's been a lot of uh, proof that, you know, doing raspberry leaf tea and eating dates and uh, some of those things are, so raspberry leaf tea works on, is a uterine tonic. So it strengthens, strengthens your uterus. 
I recommend that to my students to start at 32 weeks. They can do one cup a day around 37, jump to two around 38, jump to three. Now, again, that's not going to put them in labor. Um, and then they can start doing, I think, six dates a day, which I hate them, but goodness. <laughs> Um, I like them. They're really sweet. (laughs) Oh, I don't like them. I don't eat sugar much, so it could be why I hate them, but I hate them. Um, I still gag when I think about it to this day from, and he's six. So, (laughs) but you, we had an interesting thread going in one of my student communities where they were talking about different ways to eat dates. And I was like, man, where were you guys when I was pregnant? But, uh, so six dates a day starting at 27 weeks and you can do that for the rest of your pregnancy. Then here's what I tell my students. I do not recommend if they have no medical reason, like, like you said, if they're, if their provider saying, you know, we're going to let you go to 38 weeks. Now I have a, I have a problem with that phrase. We're going to let you, but, um, if there is a, a viable, you know, medical condition that they need to be induced and they know they're going to be induced early, then, uh, they can, you know, hopefully they've been doing those things and then, around, you know, right before the induction, you know, this is hard for me to say, because if a mom's being induced at 37 weeks, I'm going to say, don't do anything. Let your provider I'm do it in the like hospital. I'm thinking like 41 weeks, someone is, okay, yeah. you know, like, so yeah. they're hitting, so, they're, they pass their due date, they're hitting between 41, 42, and they are facing, you know, an induction. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great story for me because I don't like, like, you know, I get on my, I had a girl message me yesterday. She said, I'm 36 weeks. What can I do to get my body going to labor? I said, nothing, nothing. Do not do anything. We're not even in the window at that point. (laughs) Yeah. So I always recommend to my students after 40 weeks. Now my VBAC lab students, if their providers are what I call a VBAC tolerant provider, um, who really isn't VBAC friendly, I, we will talk about starting some stuff at 39 weeks. And what I recommend is at 40 weeks, 41 weeks, then start letting your provider do some membrane sweeps. Like I, I'm all for membrane sweeps and it usually takes a couple. And what that is, is, and I, I, again, I have a great reel on this one as well on Instagram, but they just, the provider goes like they're doing a normal cervical exam and they take their fingers and just sweep it on the inside of your cervix around. And it, it stimulates those, uh, labor hormones to kick in. Cause really what we're wanting is to get our body doing its thing. Mm-hmm. Now I tell my students all the time, come hell or high water. If your body's not ready, it's not ready. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to get it going. So I always want them to, to know that as well, you know, cause it, it, it can be very frustrating. If your body's ready, then it, sometimes it doesn't take much. Right. So some, some moms, if they have one membrane sweep within hours, they're in the hospital have, you know, in labor. Other moms, it takes two or three. Another thing that is definitely proven to work is nipple stimulation. That's one of the few DIY ways that you can induce yourself that has actually been proven to work scientifically. I actually just read an awesome study about it. Um, it was a study, I can't remember which country, it was either India, I don't remember, but the um, providers, did. they had two control groups and at 38 weeks, they had the one group start doing 15 minutes on each side once a day just nipples and not necessarily pump with a pump, even just by hand, mm-hmm. um, nipple stimulations, 15 minutes per day, both sides. And at the end of the, the study, 
the women who had done that compared to the women who hadn't, their cervix were far more favorable. Mm. So that I think is if, if I have like, even with my VBAC students, if they're, if they're healthy, nothing going on, um, I tell them at 38 weeks to start, I've started telling them, start doing nipple stimulation, you know, 30 minutes a day, 15 and 15. It can't hurt. And, you know, it could be fun for them. So, you know, I'd whatever. love to get that study and put it in the show notes. Do you know if you still yeah, have I'll it? See if I, I would I'll love see if I can that. Find it. I'm such a geek for that s- stuff. <laughs> no, me too. I'll, let me see if I can find it. Yeah. And then um, send it later. What do you think about acupuncture? I've actually done some research on that and there seems to be evidence that acupuncture as well can help a face as well as start contractions. Do you recommend that? Well, you know, it's, um, I, I've got a little bit, I don't have a lot of experience with it. And I haven't oh, I mean, done a lot of That's not something that people should do themselves. It's yeah. totally not. No, no, no. I, yeah. Well, I mean, even having gone to do it for, okay. you know, for myself. And also, is it moxibustion? Is no, that moxibustion that? is at the pinky toe to help turn a breach. Okay. These are actually needles. I had it for both okay. my kids and I've had a lot of students do it. Um, I had it around 38 weeks to help effacement. And then with both kids, granted, I don't have any sort of actual I, I'm not a study case, but both kids, I had it two days before and I went into labor, but I did interview an acupuncturist and there's real data that it can help uh, move the body, prepare the body as well as move it into labor. I mean, it makes sense. Like it, it tr- if you think about some of these things, they make sense. I mm-hmm. mean, even with nipple stimulation, of course it works because it it's stimulates oxytocin. the hormones that yeah. start labor. You know, again, like orga, I tell my students, I'm like, you need to be having sex. You need to have orgasms and you need to have semen inside because semen is also a natural prostaglandin. Mm-hmm. Like everything that we do in the hospital, our body, we're, we're just mimicking what the body does perfectly. Mm-hmm. It's just figuring out how to get those things flowing, you know? Yeah. So I think, um, there's a lot of different things, but again, it's so hard because if your body's not ready, it's not ready. So I really don't suggest you do it before 40 to 41 weeks. If you're going to do anything, because I you could agree. be, if, if you're not an IVF pregnancy, if you are an IVF pregnancy, you know, exactly when you got pregnant. Otherwise, you don't. So when you think that you're inducing yourself at 40 weeks, there's a very good chance that you're 38 weeks, 30, you know, 38 and a half. So I just feel like just waiting on our bodies. And and like you said, I, I recommend to my students if they can to wait until about 41 and three days before they really start getting aggressive on things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think it's important to know if I've had students ask me, what do I think about certain things and certain like the acupuncture? I'm like, go for it. If that makes you happy, I very much support that. The ones I've had a little bit of hesitation is some people be like, okay, what do you think of castor oil? If you're doing something that stimulates the GI tract to have contractions and that cervix, as we talked about being favorable, that cervix is long and hard and posterior. It's like running into a wall. Like it's just not, it doesn't matter if you get some contractions going, if that cervix is just not wanting to open. So it's like you were saying, the body will open. But I do have a question. I'd love to know your thoughts. So how would you suggest if someone doesn't want to be induced and it doesn't seem, again, we talked about medically indicated reasons. I am not a care provider. I'm not going to ever step on that those toes. But if it seems like, Oh, it's your due date and our practice doesn't go past that or a suspected big baby. If someone doesn't want to be induced, do you have any suggestions for how they can have a conversation with their care provider about 
getting more time? Well, you know, I have found a lot of times when, so just, I'll use one of my students. I teach them that they don't want to be like, uh, they want to be careful how they word things and they don't want to seem rude per se when they're communicating, but just to say, Hey, you know, like I've done a lot of education and you know, this is our plan. This is what we would like to stick to. So is there a reason that, uh, we can't wait, you know? So I had a student who went in, her midwife was like, well, so you're 39 weeks. Let's go ahead and schedule your induction this week. And my student was like, well, I don't really want to be induced. I'd like to go to 42 weeks. And her provider's like, Oh, okay. You know, so it was super easy. Sometimes it's just what they do. It's their normal and that, you know, that's their preference mm-hmm. to do. And so sometimes just asking clarifying questions and I, I give my students the brain acronym so they can say, you know, you know, what's the benefits? What's the risks? What's the alternatives and go through those things with their provider and find out like, you know, why are you suggesting this? Really listen to the provider. If they are quoting, like, you know, I'm sure you know about the arrived study. study. Oh, yes. (laughs) Just so frustrating. It's such an incompetent study. And, you know, they're using it. Back when I first started as a labor nurse, like, they could induce willy-nilly. Like, there was no rules. And then they, you know, they stepped in and there was, they could not induce before 39 weeks. And unless it was medically in, in, you know, indicated. So a lot of times, a lot of them were coming up with medical indications, right? And so then, um, they kind of lean towards more closer to 40 weeks. And now they're all using the arrive study to get their patients in. And it's really not a thorough study. So I tell my students, if they start saying things like, well, you know, your baby could die if you go past 40 or um, blah, blah, blah. Then I say, okay, you know, tell them your preferences and then say, well, I appreciate you saying that, but can you show me the studies? Can you show me the evidence on that? Because a lot of times what they're quoting is not exactly right, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, I just help my students sit down with them and ultimately remember that if they are fine and their baby's doing fine, that even ACOG says like our due date is not, it's a guesstimation. It's Mm -hmm. not an end date. It's a guess. And pregnancy is not post dates until after 42 weeks. So I always recommend if they go past 40 weeks, I definitely like them getting, you know, NSTs, making sure baby's doing well, um, even BPPs to make sure the fluid's Just doing well. Just so people well. know, explain what, uh, explain what those are. So an NST is where we hook you up to the monitor. Um, we check your, you know, if you're having contractions and we check the, the baby's heart rate. And what we want to see during that period is that the baby's uh, heart rate or its heart, you know, seeing its heartbeat is the best indication of fetal oxygenation. So we know the baby's getting, your placenta is doing well. If the baby's having um, increases in their heart rate, then we know that, and if they have a variation, like it's not just, you know, 
a little flat line, then we know the baby has adequate oxygen if they're moving properly. That, those are all signs. The only way mom can know that baby has good oxygen is by movement, which is why movement is so important. Mm-hmm. But um, And a BPP is an ultrasound. We do the NST plus. They measure pocket of the fluid. They measure movement, breathing movements, and they get scored. So as long as the baby's doing well and mom is doing well, there's absolutely no reason you can't go up to 42 weeks. I like that you did say, don't go in with guns blazing. I'm kind of paraphrasing because when we do that, and I know I've been worked up about things in my head and then I go in, I'm ready. It just creates confrontation. And if we can be a little softer of the approach, I think you're right that Things can be a little, and then things are heard when you come in. And I know this with my husband, I right. come in with guns blazing. Everyone's cackles go up. And so there right. may not be as much conversation and more defensiveness. So I'm glad that was the first oh, thing you sure. said. It was like, let's have a conversation instead of, ah, this has to happen. Um, right. So, and and yeah. they absolutely have rights. They have rights. But I think it's important. Like you said, I call it puffer fish syndrome. Like you don't want your provider to puff up and think, and then they're, they're going to be really less likely to listen to anything else that you say, you know, so it's just, you're not like having to manipulate them or anything. You just want to have like a, a conversation. conversation and talk yeah. it out and you hear them and they hear you. And ultimately, if you don't agree, they cannot force you to be induced. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is one of those questions. So if someone's listening to this in the community and you're earlier in your pregnancy or you're thinking of getting pregnant, this goes back to choose your care provider well. And if you have the opportunity, because I know that's not, that's a privilege to be able to choose your care provider, but if you do interview and that can be one of the questions is, okay, I'm hitting or what would be reasons I have to be induced? I'm around my due date. How far past the due date are we open to discuss? So this really goes taking many steps backwards. Right. All right. Oh, so, yeah. That's so gonna, the most powerful decision you can make in your oh, pregnancy, absolutely. in my opinion. All right. We can take a quick break and we come back. Now, you have seven kids and you've been an L&D nurse for a very long time and you're an educator. So I'm going to throw this question to you so you have a moment to chew on it. When we come back, okay. what is one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents? We'll be right back. All right. So I feel like you have this big bank of knowledge <laughs> just yeah. from your life. Is there anything simmering to the top that you feel is just dying to be shared? I think the number one thing that I would tell uh, expecting parents that I think, you know, they all start thinking about the baby equipment and all the baby stuff and we need this and we need that. But I think the far most important thing you can do during your pregnancy is to get educated. Mm-hmm. Education is power. Knowledge is power. And education along with her in, their instincts, I think also trusting the instincts um, and listening to your gut, I think are the most important things you can do even in parenting. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's such a journey. And I think if you're, if you have a solid knowledge base when it comes to both pregnancy, birth, postpartum, parenting, you know, life in general, plus your instincts, I think you should be able to do well. And it's a lot better than having like the most expensive crib, you know? Yes. Knowledge is power across the board. It is. Yeah. Where can people find your work? 
So I have my blog, which is labornursemama.com. And then most people find me on Instagram and I'm labor.nurse.mama on Instagram. And we do daily education. We have a lot of fun on Instagram. A lot of fun. Oh, wonderful. Yes, I have been looking at your Instagram. It is really fantastic. I've been quite inspired. I want to thank you for your time. I also want to thank you for putting up the fact that you could probably get, I'm sure you were a little distracted with the big pows of thunder during our conversation. I'm just glad you survived it. (laughs) There was a moment that I looked outside and there was just river of water going down. And I think someone's like package that might have been left by their door. Oh, no. That's the fun. Yeah, that of was life. loud. <laughs> was well, I fun. was thinking in my head I could hear like Garth Brooks and the thunder rolls you know, <laughs> going on. Well, thank you. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.